Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Cathy Sheridan. Roisin always seems to talk about the weather when she does this. So with a heatwave on the way this weekend, it seems only appropriate that I do too. It's all clear skies and sunglasses from here into next Wednesday, apparently. Meanwhile, I'm down in the most magical place in Kerry, directly across from the Skelligs, which I can't see because of a lovely mist. So I'm kind of hoping that the country evens up in the next few days. Now, we have a really impressive woman on today's show. Ethel Rowan is a writer who describes herself as, quote, a kind of a queen of uncomfortable stories. Originally from Dublin's north side, Rowan emigrated from Ireland to San Francisco 30 years ago. She is the author of a number of short story collections and a novel. Her latest book, In the Event of Contact, is a collection of 14 stories set in Ireland, England and America about abuse survivors who turned their trauma into power. Rohan knows of which she speaks. Her book is dedicated simply to survivors and she herself is a survivor of sexual abuse as a child. The abuse was carried out by a family friend of her parents and was ongoing over several years. Rohan says she kept the abuse secret and her parents died never knowing what had happened. In today's episode, she talks to Roisin Ingle about that painful experience, about her childhood growing up in Ireland and how she came to writing late in life. But they began by talking about Rowan's life in San Francisco. Ethel, thank you so much for joining us from your home in lovely San Francisco. Can you describe where you're talking to us from? Yeah, I'm at the dining room table of my uh, open plan home here in San Francisco. I live in the West Portal District, which is quite village-like, which I think mostly appeals to my husband, who's uh, an Irishman from Balnehown, not far from Athlone, County Westmeath. And... um, yeah, it's 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 a happy home. I'm pleased to say. Um, yeah, I'm married here with my husband. I have two daughters who, I cannot believe it, are now the grand ages of 22 and 19, um, and they're temporarily home with us uh, at the moment. So it, it, it's a nice time. Well, that's great. And you've been over there for nearly 30 years, but you're actually from Cabra. So tell us how you ended up there. Uh, I'm actually from Fibsborough, a stone's oh, throw. Oh God, how dare I? That's shocking. Not at all, not at all. Yeah, oh, stop. Uh, th- that's a whole other story. But no, I'm from Fibsborough, not a stone's throw from Cabra. And I followed my my childhood friend here. You know, we it's a little surreal. We spent years sitting on the couch in her living room looking at these TV shows, uh, you know, Hill Street Blues and and Hawaii Five O, and it was always we're going to go to America when we grow up. We're going to go to America when we grow up. And she answered an ad um, in the classifieds. This is how far back we're going, you know. Circled with the red pen, the classifieds in the newspaper, and off we trotted up to the top of our road to the public phone box. 
and she made a collect call to answer one of these jobs for a nanny. Um, and she went off. I, I think she was all of 17 when she headed here. And um, I, I followed her out a couple of years later because not a couple of years, it was probably four years later. Um, I was just kind of at a crossroads in my own life and I, I kind of saw exactly where it was going. And I just decided, no, it was not the life for me, much to the horror of my poor parents, because at that time I was employed by AIB in, in Bank Centre in Ballsbridge, you know. And they Go for life, Ethel. Oh, did stop you leave it. it. Permanent, pensionable. And they were so proud. My poor dad was a barman in Cabra for, I think, almost 40 years. And sure, he was just delighted to be able to tell the punters, you know, that his, his oldest girl was, was in AIB. But uh, unfortunately... I uh, I broke their hearts a little bit on that one, but but it came good. Ethel, you said there's something interesting, which was you could see which way your life was going. What do you mean by that? Frankly, I and I've hit this kind of crossroads a few times in my life where I had arrived at a point where I thought I had everything I wanted, you know, and to everybody on the outside, I was kind of made up. You know, I had the job in AIB, uh, but frankly, I was miserable and... Um, I was in a very steady relationship. I had been dating somebody since I was 17 years of age. And, you know, we were kind of looking at engagement rings, that that point of things. And um, my mother uh, was ill for most of my life, um, you know, serious mental issues and uh, really rendered that that we were her caregivers. I, I'm one of six children, but I'm the eldest girl. So it kind of fell from me from, you know, my tween years to to take care of her. Um, and it was very much like I was the parent and she was the child. And I just saw that ahead of me. And it was kind of make the break now or this is your life. And so I made the break. And I'm sure, like you say, your parents weren't too pleased. And was there a sense among your siblings, too, that you were kind of abandoning everybody? A little bit. Uh, You know, I have three brothers and I think, you know, they were all at an age and stage where they weren't really paying a whole lot of attention, you know. Uh, And I don't remember them having kind of any strong opinions one way or the other. But my younger sisters, who are twins, um, were devastated. They really were. And, you know, it it was only in later years when they opened up more fully. One sister in particular, who's basically like, you were our mom, you know, and you left. And and that was hard. Um, But, you know... uh, Again, I'm older and wiser and we do have to take care of ourselves first and foremost and we have to do what's right for ourselves. And and I did that. And in that sense, I have no regrets. And I'm extremely close to my sisters. Like it did not damage the relationship in any way. Um, In many ways, honestly, it it strengthened this. So so you were in your early 20s, I suppose, at that stage. Did you find your, what was your friend's name who went um, four years earlier? Linda. So did you go and, did you actually go and meet up with Linda or was Linda like, No, I did. In her own life. I mean, it was just pure madness. I I am somewhat impulsive. So so when I made the decision, it was very quick. It was, I'm going, I'm doing it. And the more people said, you're mad, the more I said, you know, they just sealed the deal. Um, And no, I kind of headed off with two... (laughs) Very light suitcases, you know, I didn't, I really did not have a lot. Uh, I threw a few things into two suitcases and I landed on Linda's uh, doorstep and I slept on her, you know, pull out couch, I think for 
maybe three, four weeks. And she had a, a German roommate who was like, ah, come on now, you know, <laughs> how long is this friend of yours going to stay? And actually, I, I went with another friend um, of mine. So we were both on this futon in this <laughs> tiny little apartment. And uh, I, I followed the same face as, as my friend Linda. I, I answered a, a newspaper ad for a nanny job. And I ended up uh, working live-in in the marina, uh, which is one of the most beautiful neighborhoods in San Francisco. And I remember my first Christmas here and I was walking the beach in a pair of shorts and a T-shirt. And I thought, oh, you know, this is this is heaven. You know, and I went through, of course, all of the homesickness and all of that and all of the am I mad and, you know, the kind of heart in your mouth. So am I going to regret this for the rest of my life, which many people told me I would. But as I said, it, it all came right. And you met your Irish husband over there as well. So you couldn't, you didn't find an American man. You went and found a, no, a Westmead really. fella. Um, I honestly, and my mother's from Westmead. And so when I met him, of course, in an Irish bar here, that was very much what kind of sealed the connection almost immediately was when he said he's from Balnehan, which is a tiny village. And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know Balnehan. How would you know Balnehan? Of course, you know, how would this Jackine know Balnehan? And when I said, you know, my mother's from Castletown Gagan and we spent all of our time in Rosemount, you know, I spent summers there. And, you know, it's just one of those things where here you are 5,000 miles from home. And and really, we kind of stayed as solid as that from from the get go. And I met him, you know, within six months of arriving here. So um, I think that also kind of sealed my face as I was going to stay here. Um, yeah, he was a big factor. And what, what's his name? Porig. Porig. And yeah. what was Porig at um, in terms of employment and what did you end up doing? Uh, he uh, is a, a contractor, construction, um, mostly remodeling homes. Um, and I kind of jumped around a lot. I, I was a nanny. I worked in a, I, I did a lot of personal assistant jobs, uh, which was kind of my role in, in AIB too. So I kind of followed that path. And again, it was this pattern of, I'm not happy. And I was kind of internalizing that as, uh, I was always very good at my job. Like I'm, I'm sort of highly functional no matter what. And I kind of always pride myself on being professional. But it was getting to the point where I was like sitting on the edge of the beds in the morning, you know, in the bed in the mornings. And I was like, I just don't want to go in here. I just don't want to do this job. And so I started to feel like a failure. And then at some point I realized, no, I'm in the wrong place. I'm doing the wrong thing. And I, I want to write. I've always wanted to write. And feck it, I'm, this is what I'm going to do. And so I had never gone to college. Um, and I, I went to college here. And I pursued writing kind of after that. And what did you study? Uh, I got my bachelor's in uh, English and a, a minor in creative writing. And I, I went straight from the BA program into a, a master's program, a two-year program in uh, in creative writing fiction. Okay, so you took it really seriously. But it wasn't until so your children were in school, is that right, that you really tried to That's go right, for it? That's right, Roisin. Yeah, yeah. So my youngest daughter, as soon as she started kindergarten at age five, that's when I kind of more seriously went about yeah, pretty much a daily practice, you know, of, of kind of tapping out, <laughs> turning blank pages into at least something, you know, um, and it's kind of progressed from there. Uh, she's now 19. So, you know, we're talking about 14 years later. Um, 
And I, I still remained a pretty hands-on parent. And with my husband's business, I, I help him out too. I do a little bit of um, interior design for the jobs he does, and I do some admin work. So I've always been a little fractured, if you like, um, but more and more, particularly now as, as the girls have, have gone on to college and, and kind of, you know, they're carving their own paths, uh, I'm now much more focused on the writing. Interesting enough, I find, I think particularly with getting a book in the world, it's become so much work. It's an enormous effort now. You know, I feel like I, I need to be like this marketing promotion guru. Uh, you know, it's a huge effort and it really distracts from the writing and from the next projects. Um, so I'm not writing as much and yet I feel like I'm more fully in that space. Well, the, the book you have out now, it's your third collection of short stories. So you've obviously been writing up a storm and, and doing well because you've had, you know, considerable acclaim for them and they've sold well. Yeah, thankfully. Um, the first two collections were, were more, um, you know, the term flash fiction. They were more the short, short story form. Um, whereas this collection is, is more traditional, you know, I think in lengthwise and in sort of the narrative arc of the stories. Um, and that's, you know, I don't feel like there's, there's sometimes this suggestion or this idea that uh, there's a hierarchy or there's a, a pattern to, you know, you sort of start small with a short, short story and you build up to the short story and then the novel. And, um, you know, I, 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 I don't want to add any credence to that whatsoever. Um, it just has been my publishing path, interestingly enough. But, you know, I started out with uh, my first finished piece was a novel. Um, and I've now accepted that that was a practice novel. <laughs> um, but yeah, so this this latest story collection, I'm I, I'm feeling really good about it. I, I'm grateful that it's in the world, and um, yeah, just trying to give it its best chance. It does feel now more than ever that it has become just this huge burden on the author, you know, to be all things for the book, uh, particularly post-publication. And that's hard. That's hard when you're at heart an introvert. And, um, you know, my happiest place is the writing and everything else around it. Honestly, I, I could leave it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's called In the Event of Contact. So would you tell us a little bit about the theme that's running through the book? Yeah, um, so it is that theme of, um, you know, trespasses in regard to, to contact. And, it, and that contact can be as literal as, you know, physical touch. It can be, you know, in one story, we, we have the main character who's run over by a truck. Um, it can be different violations or trespasses. Um, but it is this idea of broken boundaries, you know, and of, and of characters... Um, feeling like that line has been crossed in, in whatever way and, and the trespass has resulted in, in injury in various forms. And I think it's true of, of the 14 stories that we meet each of the characters sort of post-trespass or, or right at the point of the trespass. Um, and it's, it, it's me following the characters through um, this sort of pivotal point and seeing how they respond to it, you know, how, how they then live post-trauma and, and how the people around them um, are affected by it. I think you've called yourself the queen of uncomfortable writing. <laughs> <laughs> the queen of uncomfortable stories. Yeah, I had to 
great, great, great interview uh, with Ty Carey, the editor of, of the Westmead uh, Independent. And, you know, it, it's a little out of context in that um, I was giving him some background on, on my childhood and this sort of play role I did, uh, you know, on the ruins of a castle beside where my mother is from in Carn, Castletown, Gagan. And I was saying how I, you know, imagined myself as this queen as a child. And anyway... It ended up being this quote that that I actually now quite happily, uh, you know, stand by uh, just in that I have over my writing journey have sort of various responses like, would you not write about anything else? Or, you know, you're such a happy, positive person. Why is there, you know, such sadness in your stories? Or why uh, why is there such... Because there, there are definite moments of discomfort and disturbances um, that, you know, kind of ignite the stories and that carry the stories along. Um, but I, I just feel, you know, and, and for at several points, you know, I try to take on that advice, you know, and I, 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 I love humor. I, I, you know, and I, I'm like, oh, I'll write a children's book. And, you know, you just can't force, I think, what you're called to do. And um, again, you know, this queen of uncomfortable stories. Yeah, I'm going to own that, you know, because um, I think that's my point. I think that is my storytelling urge. I think that's what I bring to the page each and every time, even as I might say, okay, this time I'm not going to write about X. And there it is. You know, I, I would hope that the stories are an invitation to readers to, you know, kind of sit still with, with a little discomfort and, and sit with, um, you know, maybe seeing trespasses and violations that we've become numb to, that have been so normalized, maybe seeing them in a slightly different way might uh, give readers pause. Yeah, it's interesting because your book is dedicated uh, to survivors. And yeah. I suppose there must be a story behind that. And I wonder, would you talk to us about being a survivor and perhaps about Ireland as it's a conversation we've been having, you know, over many decades here too about survivors? Yeah, um, I think as a child, I've said many, many times, I was so struck uh, by Nulo Fuelan's work, um, you know, which I read relatively young and um it resonated so deeply with me, you know, this idea of, you know, one of her quotes that, that kind of really stayed with me is this, you know, my Irish childhood robbed my eye, you know, this this eye, this voice, this this self. Um, and that deeply resonated. I, I am a survivor of um, childhood sexual abuse. And um, between that and the trauma of my mother's psychosis, um, it was a very difficult, very lonely, very frightening childhood. And I felt I got no help and I, I felt help was not there. And I felt my raising my voice, you know, whether to my father or whomever, you know, many times I thought about, you know, I used to stand outside the social services offices and like, I'll go in, I'll go in. And it's like, I, no, I won't. Because I was so afraid our mother would be taken from us. Um and and that kind of trauma and, and being alone with that and, and feeling like you have no voice, feeling like there's nobody to listen, nobody will hear you, nobody will believe you. I think that was the biggest thing, particularly with the sexual abuse and, and, and you know, the character involved who was very charismatic, very well liked. And um, I, I just felt, who, you know, nobody's going to believe me. And I also didn't want to bring any more of a burden to my family who were already suffering so much in so many ways. So... 
that's silence. Um, and that's kind of one thing. And you, you kind of grow up with that. But you get these very powerful, no matter how subtle they may be, messages from the culture and from society, stay quiet. Because again, it gets back to the don't open up that can of worms because we'll have to deal with it, you know. And, and I think, you know, it would have affected numerous families, numerous communities um, had I, and I have never revealed the identity because there's, there's nothing to be gained at this point. You know, he's dead. Um, he has family remaining. And so in that way, I will stay silent, but I refuse to stay silent any longer about my personal trauma um, and the price I have paid in many, many ways uh, for that abuse. And I know I'm far, far, far from alone, you know, and as long as the statistics remain as dismal as they are, and as long as this um, insistence on silence and insistence on, um, you know, wished, <laughs> as long as that remains, uh, I, I've decided I'm going to bang the bloody drum. I mean, I, I totally respect and understand that you had a you made that decision to, to stay to not, you know, as you say, open up that thing that was going to have so many ripple effects on so many different people, I suppose, and on your own family as well. Um, did you ever wonder whether this person was doing that to someone else or did you ever, did that kind of come into your thinking around it? Uh, it absolutely did. And unfortunately, I know I'm not the only victim of his and uh, I do wonder whom else are there. And for many, many years, I dealt with enormous guilt. Um, you know, if I had spoken up, might I have prevented others uh, I don't know that. I don't know if I'll ever know that. Um, but after many years of counselling, I have accepted that I was a child and that burden was not on me. Um, and when I could speak up, you know, that's the other thing, you know, with victims, how difficult it is, you know, physically, emotionally, in every way to speak that truth. It's incredibly incredibly difficult and it was not until my 30s that I I was able to seek help I hit rock bottom I was suicidal it was shortly after the birth of my second daughter and just looking at them and and thinking oh my god you know how could he have done what he did you know and I'm raising daughters in a world where this continues um you know, it's it's an utter epidemic, and um, I yeah, I I have definitely reckoned with that guilt, but I've made peace with it. At the end of the day, I'm the victim; uh, he's the perpetrator. Yeah, and and that person was a trusted family friend, which you just explained to people, and not somebody that you felt you could you could talk about to your parents. And I mean, I, I can imagine with your mother's illness and you being the uh, sort of as the eldest girl the person who was holding everything together for, for such a long time, you just felt that, you know, you couldn't do anything to, to make it more precarious. Absolutely. And I think, you know, ironically, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm a child. Um, you know, the abuse ended at 13 when I confronted him and said, stop, you know, enough. You, you'll never do this to me again. Um, and it was my dad throughout the whole thing of everybody because you know, from my child's child's view, I saw how much he was suffering. I, you know, my mother's illness was was really brutal. You know, she was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, which, you know, involves a lot of paranoia, a lot of vitriol. There was just constant chaos in in the house, and 
I very much felt my father was suffering enormously. And I just felt if I come forward, I am, I'm going to break his heart. You know, I'm going to kind of be the, the straw on the camel's back. Um, and I, I just didn't. And I, I never did. And, you know, both my parents passed away uh, eight years ago now. They died three months apart. And that strangely brought a sense of freedom in my ability to finally speak up and, and speak my truth in that I could no longer hurt them. You know, that knowledge could no longer hurt them. But again, you know, it's a double-edged sword because I have that pain of they never knew me. You know, they never fully knew my truth. Um, and you have to deal with the, you know, they didn't, they didn't see, you know, particularly for my dad. There is that he, he did not see. He never saw my pain. He never, you know, so you also have to kind of deal with that, like, they weren't paying attention. My father um, had schizophrenia, so I kind of um, understand slightly uh, that chaos that you describe. Um, he died by suicide when I was eight, but oh, I did not know that. I'm so sorry. No, no, it's absolutely fine. I'm just, I, I, it's, I don't meet many people who ha- have a parent with schizophrenia, and I'm kind of fascinated by it, as in. Especially, I mean, you're talking about the 80s, aren't you, really, in yes. terms of when you when you would have left. Um, you know, at that time, mental illness like schizophrenia was so misunderstood and the treatments were so, um, you know, crude in a way. I'm just wondering about how your sort of how the mental health services and, and all of that coped with or tried to help your mum or did it work or what kind of help did you get? Yeah, my Mother, unfortunately, was a very complicated case in that she also suffered from a degenerative eye disease, which is called uh, retinitis pigmentosa. So she was legally blind. It's a progressive disease. Uh, she was legally blind from you know her 30s on. It became progressively worse. And I think it's hard to know, but I you know obviously the schizophrenia compounded that in that she never believed or accepted that she was blind. And so to her, I can see, you know, you'd walk into a room and she'd say, oh, you look lovely, you know, this kind of thing, or, or, you know, depending on where she was with medication, etc. It could be something really cruel that she would say, but, you know, just this refusal to deal with it. So she never went down the route of, you know, the white cane, you know, and I always said for years, I was her white cane, you know, I was, you know, holding her, along the streets and she would say if any of the neighbors come like tell me who they are and I'd say oh here's Mrs. Cal hello Mrs. Cal how are you today you know this it was so it was just constant my life was constant pretense in so so many ways um and she went undiagnosed and untreated for years Roisin until she also uh got to the point where and again there was so much secrecy even within my family uh, again, I did not know her true diagnosis until my late 30s when I was, you know, in an appointment with her, with the psychiatrist. Um, I, I had always thought she was bipolar or, you know, I, I thought the medication she was on was lithium and, and it turned out that was all wrong. Um, but, you know, she never accepted her mental illness. Uh, she always had to receive a monthly injection because she would not take the medication and, you know, the, the, the injection was like, oh, that's my, that's my tonic, you know, it was always, it was just such a, a surreal experience in that nobody kind of spoke openly about it or acknowledged it uh, outside of the home, which was, you know, we just didn't have people in the house because she was too volatile and you just didn't know how she would be. Um, so I would say, honestly, the, the mental health services, as far as I'm concerned, failed her. 
you know, I've no doubt about that. Um, you know, I remember doctors coming to the home and telling us, you know, you need to make your mother feel needed. Uh, you know, this kind of thing. And again, I'm looking at them like, you know, we're kids, we're kids and, and we're suffering at the end of this. And uh, it was very, very bizarre. But uh, when I was 15, she she really hit rock, rock bottom and was suicidal and was, you know, out and about, uh, you know, while being blind and, and very vulnerable. And uh, anyway, she she was found, she went missing and she was found by the police. And um Again, you know, I always remember my dad saying it's the hardest thing he ever did in his life, but um, he, he signed her into Grange Gorman at that time. And then, you know, in later years, she was in and out of St. Pat's. And, um, you know, the, the, the injections definitely helped, but then you would see them wearing off, you know, toward the end of the month and you would know, oh, she's due another injection, you know. So it was always there and it was heartbreaking because, you know, at her best, she was an incredibly kind, loving, tender mother. Um, and under illness, uh, it was really brutal. Yeah, I mean, I'm really, um, my mom has actually written a memoir about, you know, her own journey, but with my father too. And it's really resonating that. what you're saying. Yeah, it's not published yet, is it, Roisin? No, it'll be out in September. I better give it a plug because she's probably listening. It's called Open Hearted. <laughs> So it's no, available. No, I saw that and I'm absolutely delighted for her and it's on my reading list. Yeah, I mean, you know, and it's I think it's really important in terms of what you're saying as well. Just the stigma that was attached, I think, was very difficult. And I imagine for you as a teenager, even not being able to have friends around or not being able to and, and knowing that people thought, oh, that's her with the with the mad mother or whatever. It must have been yeah. so difficult. It was. And in fairness, I don't ever remember my friend you know they they just kind of understood again there was just so much unspoken um but you know they they kind of knew to knock on the door and stand three feet back and you know it was just very very strange a very very strange time but again it just shrouded my beginnings in these layers of of pretense and facade and um you know, you're hiding, you're constantly hiding and it becomes toxic and it becomes like its own form of prison. And, uh, you know, I, I've spent the last decade plus kind of unlocking myself from all of that. And uh, I mean, I suppose it never fully um, leaves you, but do you feel like are you a very different person to the person who, say, met um, Porig in that pub? And I mean, even then, would you have had a sense of hiding and a sense of not being completely yourself you you obviously have done a lot of work since then to, to to find yourself does it feel like you're there now i feel rotin i have recovered myself enormously in that i feel like a more grounded fuller version of myself but it's not a fully forward journey in that I can have setbacks, um, I can have struggles, I can have triggers. Um, and that part of hiding, you know, I've had my own issues with, with depression and, and anxiety. And uh, several years back, I was uh, diagnosed with PTSD. And when I hit my slumps, I tend to hide myself because, you know, the voice in my head is like, people don't want to be around me. People don't want to be around this. Um and I'm kind of hiding, you know, when I hit the weak points and I'm kind of, um, if part of it is, is self-protection. Another part is I don't want anybody to see me like this, you know. I, I 
So I'm also trying to be kinder to myself with that and, and to give the people in my life more credit and allow them to see me when I'm hurting. And I, I want to be, I, 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 I want to inspire, you know, that that's my thing. I want, I want to be like a role model for other survivors in that role model is probably the other word, but I, you know, I want to be able to, I, I have definitely recovered and improved I do believe it will be a lifelong journey. Mm. And do you feel it affected your own parenting of your daughters? The fact that, you know, did you have almost like you said, PTSD, do you have flashbacks of how you were parented and almost railing against that and trying to go the other way and, and all of that kind of thing? Thankfully, Roisin, you know, I, I have to say my dad, you know, for all his complexities, uh, was a very gentleman as a parent, um, the complete opposite to my, to my mother. You know, he, his discipline, you know, the, he was, I'm so disappointed in you. And it was, it would break your heart. You know, it's like, oh my God, please don't be disappointed in me. You know, whereas my poor mother would like rage and, and it was just completely different. And I thankfully, thankfully, uh, have inherited my father's parenting style in the gentleness, in the, you know, patience, you know, uh, I don't know. I, I think sometimes in life, and I think I might have said this in one of my stories, but I think, you know, you either repeat the patterns or you completely break free of them. And as I said, my mother also at her best was incredibly loving. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I'm confident my, my two daughters would support me when I say um, I, I adore them and I, I, I'm very proud and happy of who I am as a parent because you're always terrified that you repeat the patterns, um, Yeah. you know, and, and, and because, you, you know, you worry you don't know any better, you know, that, that better was not modeled for you. But, but it wasn't all horrible and terrible. And, you know, I think, again, sometimes that's difficult to wrap your head around you know that that you can have such trauma and brutality and chaos and yet you know there was still love and there was still like as I said when I left I was so homesick and I go back I keep going back you know and pull back all the time even though my parents are gone now but there's just there's a lot there and there's a lot there that's positive and there's a lot there that's love and you know, I love my children. I, I think for me, the trauma with my children and what triggered, you know, the PTSD was um, was just their birth and, and their innocence and their joy. And I very much have obsessed at my worst times um, with this idea of who, who would I have been had I not had the child that I had. And my message, resounding message was always, I would be better. And so is this alternate self that I idolized that I was never going to be. So therefore, I'm always inferior. I'm always damaged. I'm always less than. Um, and I've, I, I, that's where I, I've done the most work. And um, I, I've recovered that sense of all I have is me. I think all of that really informs your writing. And I'm just going to read a little bit from a very nice review in the Irish Times of the collection. And uh, it said most of Rowan's subjects have been trespassed against. A philandering father rejects his son. A bloated middle aged neighbour abuses a child. Most of her main characters are grown up by now. And in some of their stories, their early injuries are a secret they keep even from themselves. But through subtly wrought metaphors and similes, Rowan draws us beyond the accommodations they have made in order to survive and into 
to the heart of their trauma and it was called a fine collection. So you can't say fairer than that, can you? That was, that's a nice review to get. No, I, I was delighted and so grateful. And of course, you know, the, the lovely praise. I'm, I'm so grateful, but I have no idea who the reviewer is. I, I, I don't know what she knows about me personally, but that she got the heart of the collection is for me... I was just so, so moved by that and so delighted by that. And in so many ways, you know, she has articulated it better than perhaps I ever had in any of my interviews. Um, yeah, she got to the heart of it and, and, and the hope and the idea that other readers will is very gratifying. Yeah. I mean, you went off to America kind of looking for uh, the American dream, I suppose. I mean, who knows what that is now? But yeah. uh, did you find it? And has has your sense of the American dream, has that changed since you've been living there? Uh, I think I found it in that, you know, as I say, when you come at first and, and you're young and you know you've been impulsive and you know, you know, so many people are dead set against what you've done, you're terrified, you know, and, and I was always an anxious person. So I didn't need much excuse to be terrified. Um, but very quickly, it came right for me in that, um, you know, I, I created a good life here very, very quickly and, and I felt safe here. And, and bizarrely, you know, all of the uh, trespasses, if you will, that I've experienced in my life, because unfortunately, this is the other thing when you're a victim of, of, of sexual abuse and, and you're in a home that's chaotic um, and in many ways you feel parentless, um, you're so vulnerable. And so I got myself into other situations um, of other trespasses. And then you start to say, is it me? You know, do I have a sign on my back? And you just realize, no, it gets back to the, I don't have an eye. I don't have a voice. Like nobody told me I could say no, you know, feck off, get your hand off me. How dare you? Nobody told me that. And, you know, you know, that maybe that sounds, but that's the truth. I nowhere in the culture, you know, was I seeing strong women saying F you, you know, you don't get to do that. Um, but, you know, I, I left Ireland at 22. I came here. Yeah, have I had a couple of shitty bosses, whatever else. But I've never, ever, ever been trespassed in that way again. I've had no sexual harassment. I've had, you know, it, it's just so strange. So I think my making that break definitely was a huge uh, crossroads in my life. And I think once I did something that scary and survived and felt like, cliche but felt like I landed on my feet even if that just meant that I had an, you know a nanny job and I had a, you know a boyfriend that I was head over heels with and I was back with my childhood best friend and you know things were feeling good I've had a very good life I again adore my daughters um, and I get to write I have a very privileged existence here but I will say as regards the American dream my god you know in the last several years politically have my eyes been opened um and, you know, you, I'm seeing it all over the world, but but America for sure and, and Trumpism, I, I've just been horrified. I've been genuinely horrified and so disillusioned. Uh, you know, I'm living in this bubble of San Francisco and I knew it wasn't all of America. And, you know, it's a huge country, 50 states, many difficult, difficult you know, experiences and, and political ideologies and all of that. But I did not, I did not know the depths of the hate, um, fascism, racism, individualism, all of that. Um, 
So I, I am in this weird point now where I'm not sure what happens from here because you said something key earlier, you know, the person I was when I came here and, and meeting my husband and I was a very, very different person and I'm just continuing to grow and I'm just continuing to change. And I am again at a crossroads that I was at at age 22 where I'm like, I'm really feeling this pull to make a major shift again. And I honestly don't know what that looks like or what that involves. But again, my 22-year-old heart is saying, this is the same place you were. You're being called to make a huge leap. And I, I'm just hoping, you know, that I get some answers. Well, whatever your answers are, Ethel, I hope you'll come back and tell us when you find out what it is and when you make that leap, because it's been absolutely wonderful to talk to you. And um, you're you're such a fine writer, as that um, reviewer said, and the book is available now for anyone to go and and read. And maybe when you come back to Fibsborough again or to Dublin, you might come in um, and see us in real life if we're, if we're ever back in the in that situation again. I would absolutely love that, Rosina. And honestly, I'm such a fan of the podcast. You all do an incredible job. And uh, it's such important work because you're doing exactly you know, what I needed for so, so long, you're, you're raising voices, you're, you're allowing voices to be heard on really, really difficult and important topics. So thank you all so much. Well, that means an awful lot. Ethel Rowan, thank you so much for joining us today. Take care. Thank you. Thanks a lot. That's all we have time for. Thanks to Ethel Rowan and a reminder that our book is called In the Event of Contact. The podcast is produced by Roisin Engel, Jennifer Ryan and Suzanne Brennan with JJ Vernon on sound. Contact us on social. We're on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter using at IT Women's Podcast. We're on email to thewomenspodcast at irishtimes.com and we love hearing from you. Until the next time, mind yourself. Thanks for listening. And here's hoping the mist lifts sometime soon. Bye for now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.